I forgot to change the title slide. Well, we're, we're at the end of our Unexpected Jesus series. And this week, last week we did, I just can't even, thinking about how Christ would choose to spend time with people who were uh, less than desirable, let's say. <laughs> and this week we're going to shift gears because we're going into Holy Week. And this is the week, the one week of the year, where we give a lot of concentration and attention to the last week of Christ. This is when we think about what he had to suffer and go through. This is a sobering week for us. But we start with this Palm Sunday where people came, and we remember the people came, and they invited Jesus, celebrated Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. And... Uh, by the end of the week, they were the same people calling for his ex- execution. And so in that regard, I want to remind you uh, a little bit of, of what Christ endured and went through and just call your attention back to that. Um, in our tradition, we don't generally spend a lot of time focusing on the imagery of Christ's suffering. We don't have crucifixes in very many Protestant churches. Catholic churches do, and you're reminded of the graphic nature of uh, Christ's death all the time. We're reminded more of a cross that's empty. He's not hanging there anymore. And each Sunday we come together on the first day of the week because that's the day of the week when Christ rose from the dead, and it's the day of resurrection. But before we get to that resurrection, this week we're going to walk down that path that is really painful with Christ as we remember that he was abandoned by everyone and turned on and and killed. So in Mark 15, we read a little bit of the story. And uh, I just want to read these few verses to kind of set the frame for Christ and what he went through. And then we're going to walk through that and what that means to us. Jesus is already hanging on the cross when this happens. He's dying. And people are watching him be executed. And this is what we read. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said. Let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry. And breathe his last. 
Throughout this series, as I've been starting the message, I've been reminding you that many things about Christ are things that we probably wouldn't look for. We wouldn't find them compelling. And in fact, we might choose to reject. Christ who spends time with sinners. Christ who pushes back against prevailing culture. Christ who does miracles that are hard to explain and, and uh, might even be embarrassing for the people around him. And then we come to this week where we have Christ who dies. In our line of thinking as, as humans, when we think about our need of God, we probably default to a need to have God who is almighty, sufficient, powerful, who is able to change bad things and make them good all the time, or in some terminology that's floating around today in our nation's uh, politics, we need a God who wins. We need a winner. And so often with Christ, it doesn't look like winning. It doesn't look like winning in our terms at least. And in fact, these days, I'm, I'm not sure that we even know ourselves in the United States what winning looks like. Because we're being told that this is what it's like to win, but it seems like it divides us and it degrades people and it tears things more apart and fragments things more than it brings us together and makes us better. Um, and once again, as we look at Christ, we're, we're looking for a winner. We want... Somebody who just walks in and the situation changes for the better. Not just for the better, but it it changes dramatically and irrevocably. And it's great. So God, come make bad things good. And then when we get to the last week of Christ, we see God who comes and enters willingly into bad, horrible things. And that just seems counterintuitive to us. A God who subjects himself, humiliates himself and takes on the worst suffering and that's winning? That just doesn't seem to fit. In our understanding today, it seems like winning means that everything goes our way. We get to do things we want to do and we are on top. But Christ coming to the cross shows us that his character turns that upside down and he submits himself and and he allows himself to be arrested by occupying forces. And he he allows himself to be tried by ungodly religious leaders. He permits Roman soldiers to beat him. And then he walks that walk up the hill with a cross and allows humans to put holes in his body, break his legs. No, not quite. But cram a crown of thorns on his head. 
And this doesn't look like winning. Winning doesn't mean you let people do things that hurt you. Winning means you make people do things that, that advance you, put you ahead. But what we see here as, as Christ allows himself in this position, for those of us who have some appreciation for what happens next, it's an incredibly uh, riveting scene that the God of all creation, fully God, fully human, would permit us to do this to him. It pales in comparison. It's probably a terrible analogy, but I remember growing up watching my dad, and my dad had had some very distinct grooming habits, and one of the things my dad cared a lot about was his hair. He didn't have much, so what he had, he took care of. And I remember watching my dad stand in the bathroom in front of the mirror and... and uh, Back then, I don't know, I guess it was brill cream, something he was putting in his hair, and then he would comb it, part it, and, you know, just very fastidious about how he looked. And, and I was always proud that my dad took care of his appearance. And I never once thought, I wonder what dad would do if I just walked up and messed up his hair. I wouldn't have even thought of that. I'm sure that I would have been reprimanded and told how inappropriate that was. Uh, that, you know, that's just, that wasn't done. Not in my generation or many of yours. And so, as years passed and I became an adult, it was amazing to me when I watched my dad. I was driving the car one day, and this was in Africa and over there. They don't have the same, you know, certainly back then, they didn't have the same traffic laws we have here. But we had pulled over to stop, and my dad had his oldest granddaughter on his lap sitting in the passenger seat. We weren't going down the road at the time, but we were waiting for somebody. And so she climbed out of the back seat and climbed up into Papa's lap. And there she sat, and she was probably, I don't know, three years old, two years old, somewhere in there. Just a toddler. And she sat on Papa's seat, and he and I were deep in some conversation that we thought was terribly important at the time. And she reached up and just ran her hands through his hair and messed, them up. You messed his hair up. And the nice, neat part just went haywire. And, and, and my dad used enough stuff in his hair that he could be in a Kansas wind and it wouldn't blow his hair. But she just messed his hair up and I just went, you know, I just aghast. Because the thought of somebody messing up my dad's hair just seemed impossible. And so then I waited to see what he would do with his granddaughter sitting on his lap, messing up his hair. And to my shock and amazement, my dad laughed and took her hands and rubbed them in his hair and hugged her. And I just sat there going, what just happened there? That's, that's crazy. And then later on, I told my sisters, you will not believe what happened in the car today that, that I sat there with dad and he let Desiree just mess up his hair and he laughed and he, I can't believe it. It pales in comparison, but yet somehow similar that, that God would come to earth and allow us to mess up his body. Pierce it. And willingly sit there and be humiliated after what he had worked so hard to do. 
spent so much time bringing people along, helping them understand the kingdom of God, and then they kill him. And I'm reminded that at this moment, something is happening. Things are coming together. Things are aligning in a way that they have never aligned before. And there's this confluence of the character of God and the power of God all at once that brings us to this place. This confluence that has the power of God to establish the world, to enforce his will on people, comes together with the character of God that longs for people to live as his children. And as those two things come together, what emerges is Christ who would say, go ahead. If that's what you want to do to me, go ahead. I have to tell you that that the moment of the cross is so pivotal for us as Christians because it reminds us that the wrathful God of the Old Testament makes a decision to say, I will not judge you for this. And so there he hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But I'll let them do it anyway. And so there's this this merging of the power and the justice of God with the love and the mercy of God and they collide in a violent, but for many of us, a beautiful moment. I'm reminded if that's the way Christ works and if we are called to imitate Christ, to walk in his ways, to do what Jesus did, We've got some soul searching to do. And Paul reflects on it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. And next week we're going to start talking about what it means to be raised to life with him. But in the meantime, he says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now he lives, now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So there's this, there's this, challenge now that we participate somehow in the death of Christ. I don't understand it. It's a mystery to me, but he puts to death our guilt and shame with him and invites us into resurrection. And next Sunday, we're going to celebrate that and we're going to move into a whole new season. 
And the promise is that now in death we find new life. I recently was, was having a conversation with some other church leaders outside of our local church about when churches close. And the terminology that was being used in the conversation was they talked about churches that die. Well, the church died there. And, and some of the churches, we were talking about some specific situations and specific locations. And as we were talking about them, some of them we, we recognized that these were churches that had sprung up in little communities around our part of the country. And as demographics and economics changed, those little communities just withered and shrunk. And the population base where those churches were got smaller. And it was hard for some of our churches to continue in those places where there were fewer and fewer people. And then we reflected on the fact that we had churches in places that are not dying. And I've been around this part of the country and our system, in in our church system, for long enough that I can go through a list of places that are not dying communities, but our churches are no longer there. At some point, we had something there that was vibrant and alive, but it's gone. Places like Omaha, Nebraska, and Junction City, and Ottawa, Olathe, Kansas City West. I mean, these are not dying communities, but, but we died there, or at least what we were trying to do in ministry wasn't sustained. And as we were talking about this, we were kind of grieving this together. We said, you know, our system has given way and we just, we don't have the strength and the vibrancy we once had. And, and as we were talking, I was reminded, I mean, this is why believing in God is so vitally important. It's, it's, it's crucial to me as a believer in Christ to be reminded that death is a tool of God. No family ever wants to hear that in the hospital waiting room. But the truth of the matter is that the Lord used death to do something that could not be done through a little lamb, a baby sheep, or some doves, or a calf that was sacrificed in the temple. And yet, and and God used death, he used the imagery of death, even all the way back in the Old Testament when, when God formed a covenant and made a bond with Abraham. He was, he was talking to Abraham and he said, you know, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless the world. You are going to be a blessing to the world. And here was Abraham and he and his wife, they, they were infertile. They couldn't have kids. And here God's saying, I'm going to make nations from you. And, and to firm up, to sign the contract on the covenant, God goes through this ritual. There was a common ritual at the time where when you made an agreement together, you killed an animal, you split its body in half, you put the two halves, one on one side and one on the other, and then the two of you walk between the two halves of the body and to to understand the significance of a covenant, of a contract of that form, you walk through that really nasty scene and oftentimes you got blood on your shoes and on the bottom of your garments. 
So God says, I'm going to do this with you, Abraham. And, and then the, the thing that happens is, is Abraham's kind of like me. He falls asleep. And, and, and maybe God did that to him, or maybe God just waited until Abraham was exhausted. And Abraham falls asleep, and then God, it says, God moved between the parts of the animal by himself. And he made this covenant with Abraham. And it's a lasting covenant. We can see then from then on, you can trace this line through the Old Testament, through Abraham's descendants, that God continues to work with these people, even though those people were terrible at times, were godless, forgot that they had a covenant, went and started worshiping other gods. But there was this covenant, and part of this covenant was to have some kind of union between God and people. Then, of course, we remember that God says, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new testament in Jesus Christ. And so we see, again, a death is employed, and God himself dies in order to form a new covenant. And it's different this time. Christ himself said, now God will be with you. I'm sending my comforter to come and my spirit will be in you. And things have changed. And so now it's not just about a union, it's about a communion. To where now we're, we're coming together as one in Christ. And the promise is that we're no longer to live like the people in the Old Testament who, had, who simply had the law to rely on. That's what God, God said. I give you the law. Just follow my rules. I've made the covenant. But now God says, now what? I am, wait, I'm making a covenant through my son, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm forging the covenant in the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. And now I am bringing my spirit to everyone who finds me. And now the kingdom of God has come on earth. And it's not just to Abraham and his descendants and the children of Israel or the Hebrews or the the Jewish people, but now the gates are thrown open. And you remember the, the curtain in the temple is split and the Holy of Holies is opened up because the presence of God is no longer contained in a little room in a temple. But the presence of God is now in the hearts of his people. That's what scripture tells us. And it's a different promise. But when God made covenant with us because he wanted to be with us, he gave us his word. He gave his word to Abraham too. But he knew, I think, that Abraham and Abraham's descendants would fail. So he didn't pass through on that covenant together. But this is a covenant that applies to us. And I'm reminded how Jesus took seriously that he was to come to be the sacrifice for us. That's why I came. Wouldn't it have been nice if the blood of Christ that was required would have been like a diabetic glucose test? You know what I mean? You know, those little test strips you just poke your finger a little bit, it's uncomfortable, it hurts. Make no mistake, there's a lot of nerve endings in your finger. 
But wouldn't it be nice if you could just kind of poke and get a little drop of blood, you know, and you squeeze it out and you put it on the little strip. If you've never seen that, it's, it's pretty simple. Because, you know, one drop of Christ's blood surely had enough power to save the world. You know, couldn't we have just done a little lancet and poked his finger and one drop of blood and it's all done. Thank you. You bled for us. No, that's not the way Christ did it. He came and he suffered and he set this example for us and then he calls us to imitate his ideals. We want to be winners. But he shows us how to be a servant. He shows us how to sacrifice. I've, I've gotten in some online debates recently that were pretty much a waste of time, like just about every online debate. Somebody sent me a meme recently, and they, it said, you know, your argument on Facebook saved a thousand people. <laughs> no. And my online debate probably didn't arrive at much. But we were debating the character of Christ and there were some things that are, were being said about current leadership in our country. And this, this is on both sides of the aisle, by the way, and the way that we're being belligerent with each other. And this person was advocating, saying that's, that's the way Christ would do it. You know, he, he formed a whip and drove people out of the temple. And my response was, I guarantee you he didn't have a smile on his face. Because the same guy within days said, go ahead. Nail me. Whip me. Cram that crown of thorns on me. And that image is far more compelling than a moment of cleansing the temple to make it a house of prayer. And there's all kinds of stuff to interpret into that as well. But if we imitate Christ, if we are going to be the Christ followers of this world, we have got to somehow come to grips with the fact that our word of following Christ means at some point we're going to sacrifice. At some point we're going to say, okay, that's not me. That's not who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pull back. For some of us, it's, it starts maybe with some pieces of conduct. I had a conversation with a young man this week who told me that he had battled in the past with his language, just using really bad language. And God worked on that kind of conduct. And yeah, I'm going to change the way you talk. For some of us, it's, it's dealing with other habits that we've had to break. Habits of, of uh, using chemicals to try and make ourselves feel good. Alcohol or drugs. Or even... Activities like gambling or promiscuity. And we start with that kind of conduct, but I, I, I guarantee you that's not all God wants to do with us. He doesn't just want us to sacrifice stuff that we think will make us feel good. God wants us to sacrifice for a purpose. So if God's saying, I want you to change the way you talk or give up drinking alcohol, why? Because he wants to do something there. So this imitating Christ is an imitating Christ with an ideal in mind that, that somehow if I choose to sacrifice with Christ, 
there is a greater good that will come of my sacrifice. I just want to remind you that God does not ask us to suffer for his pleasure. He doesn't enjoy suffering, but there is purpose to be found in suffering, and particularly when the purpose of suffering can be closely identified with what we value. Years and years ago, I was involved in a conversation among pastors. It was an ongoing conversation online, and this was way before Facebook even showed up. We were doing it by email, and, and some of you remember the news groups. Kids, they're all gone. Don't worry. They're not. Anyway, we had a news group, and several of us pastors from around the country, we were on there, and a good friend of mine was on there, and uh, a brilliant guy. He was very, very intelligent, and we were talking about some things, and and. I went to bat for some of my values. I went on there and I said, you know, you may want to do things another way, but I really value this. And one of, one of my values, I think that some of you have picked up on, is that I have a deep belief that God cares specifically and specially for those who are poor and oppressed. And I think there's an abundance of scripture where God talks about the poor and how we treat them and what he wants to do with that and and how we interact with people who are dispossessed. And in this conversation that was going on, there were things being advocated about how we do church and who we try to invite to church. and, And I stood up for my values on there. And it'll come as no surprise to you, I I took a beating. I mean, there were some intelligent voices on there that came from large, large churches that said, you've got this all wrong. And finally, I, I withdrew my voice. I said, I, you know, thanks for the time of conversation we've had. And it, this should have tipped me off that this would go on and on and on with the development of technology. But I just finally said, okay, then I'm pulling back. I don't know. This week we heard all about Facebook and how things on Facebook are being used in ways that we maybe had hoped they wouldn't. And some of you might be making decisions about, I'm not going to be on Facebook anymore because of the way they're using data. But I pulled back just because I valued something. And in the conversation with with brothers and sisters in Christ, they were being told, don't talk about that. That is not important right now. We'll get to that when we've got other things figured out. And so I finally posted, and I said, thanks for my time on here, letting me have a voice, but I care too much about this, so I'll pull myself out. The next week, I saw my friend Marcel, and Marcel came up to me, and he said, you know, that took a lot of character. And I said, yeah, people call me a character all the time. But no. He just said, that took a lot of character. And, and then he said, you know, your words have hung with the group. And he said, I know you're no longer on there. You're not accessing that news group. But your words hung with that. And it's changing the conversation. And he tried to invite me back into it. And I said, no, I got, I got mad. And I need to step out. And he said, you know, it's interesting, though, that as you pulled yourself out, then people are saying, well, you know, maybe we need to take another look at this. And I said, it was just too costly for me. Those are the words I said. Just too costly for me. And my friend Marcel said, he, he pointed right at my chest. And he goes, you got to remember. And he used the term leadership, but I would call it followership of Jesus. 
always comes at a price. He said, leadership always comes at a price. I say, following Jesus always comes at a price. Within a year and a half, Marcel moved from here in Kansas. He went up to Michigan, pastored a church up in Michigan. And one day, just driving home from the church, got hit by a car, killed him instantly. And I was just stunned. But it stuck with me that my friend Marcel came to me and said, you know, following Jesus always comes with a price. And that just, that just nailed it down in my life. It just anchored it. When we do what we value, it will always cost us. Whether it's as a church and we say this is our value as a church and people go, well, I'm not going to a church like that. There will always be some who will come alongside and go, that's exactly the church I'm looking for. Whether it's as a, as a person in a profession at work where you go, you know, I'm not going to conduct myself that way because I won't sacrifice my values and my characters to look like that. Some people will go, well, you'll never get ahead. But we believe that God blesses the faithful. Or maybe it's in school where we're, we're facing, you've got to take a test, and I didn't prepare very well, and I could cheat because the, the teacher's not very attentive, and others in the class are taking license to do this, or I've got to write this paper, and I could just cut and paste these huge pieces of information and just plagiarize them, which always gets you caught. Or we could say, you know, no, I, do, I value honesty. I value truthfulness. I value kindness. And I am not going to become that person because that is not the person of Christ. That is not the body of Christ. Well, if we do that together, we become people of the sacrifice. I could stop right here and say, okay, how many of you tithe? Don't don't raise your hands. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But, you know, I can say, how many of you tithe? Give 10% to our church. Some of you would raise your hands. Some of, I know some of you give more than 10%. And then I could say, okay, how many of you haven't given anything financially in the last two years? And you might go, well, you know, two years. I think 18 months ago I put 25 bucks in. You know, here's, here's the thing. If we don't learn to sacrifice, we don't imitate Christ. If we don't learn to live our lives in such a way that we entrust to God our own character, we don't imitate the cross. To be quite honest with you, I don't care a whole lot about the number of what you give financially. I don't really care that much about the number of hours in the week you volunteer here. I don't really care about the number of people that you tell about Jesus Christ. What I care intensely about is your heart. And so instead of being winners by the world's definition, maybe we could be people who let go. We loose what the world would hold on to. 
In one of the previous messages, I talked to you about what Jesus spent a lot of time talking about. And Bob Sorga, an author, talked about how there is a theme that runs through the Gospels. You find it in all four Gospels, and, and, and you find it at different times in different iterations where, where Christ used this theme of what you have when you give it up for me, you gain. You know, when you, when you give up your life for me, you gain something. Or when you let go of this and, you know, the, the parable of the talents is an iteration of that. And, and you know, all these, these ways that Jesus said, you know, when you let it go for me, when you loose it for me, you gain something. But to the world, that looks like foolishness. The more you gain, the more you gain, the more you gain, Right? But instead, Jesus frames it this way. He says, you know, if you really want to be my follower, you should take up your cross. And he didn't start with that, did he? He didn't say you should take up your cross. Come on, go to the cross with me. He started with something else. If you want to be my follower, deny yourself. Loose it. Let it go. Then take up your cross and then follow. It seems so counterintuitive. It just doesn't seem to work in the world's wisdom. Deny ourselves. I know that some of you have done this in some incredible ways. You've, you've passed up on opportunities. You have given up things financially. You have let go of relationships that were dishonoring to God. I could go on and on. You, many of you have gone down this path where you had to deny what you really wanted because you knew what you really wanted conflicted with God. 